Okay, here we go. We're going to cover chapters 4 and 5, which I'm entitling The Heart of the Matter. And the ellipsis is because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. You got it. Very good. So chapter 4, the heart is the target. And folks, this is both of these chapters deal with the same thing in a little different way. One, the other one's the war within, which is fascinating. But that first statement, effective personal ministry, because that's the goal. The goal is that each of us are better at telling others about Christ as we counsel them. Effective personal ministry takes the kingdom promise of lasting change to the place where it is needed, to the heart. And, and, and uh, Paul Tripp has, a, uh, he has an illustration that we're going to come to a little bit later. There's a classic illustration about the difference between a lot of counseling, including too much I've done myself, and, and real biblical counseling that goes to the heart. So follow along here, but look first at Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. All right, anybody need Bibles? You know, hopefully you've got them or you can look on with somebody else. Good way to share. Okay, Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, and of course thorns remind you of the curse, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, that's a person who's made good by grace, who has a good heart. The good person out of the good treasure, now we're going to come back to that, the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure which is in his heart, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's why effective personal ministry takes the kingdom promise of lasting change to the place where it's needed, to the heart. Now he asks the question, why do people do the things they do? And he says, rightly, the Bible uses heart to describe the inner person. Scripture divides the human being into two parts, the inner and outer being. The outer person is your physical self. The inner person is your spiritual self. That's what the what spiritual is, is, is not mystical, but what God is making by the Holy Spirit. It encompasses all the other terms and functions used to describe the inner person. So biblical language of spirit, soul, mind, emotions, will. All of that, all that, as he says, these other terms don't describe something different from the heart. Rather, they're aspects of it, parts or functions of the inner person. And this is the nub. The heart is the real you. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So now, again, Luke, 4, or Luke 6, 43 to 45, fruit, root, and heart. There is an organic relationship between the roots of the plant and the fruit it produces. Fruit means behavior. Christ says that our words are literally our heart overflowing. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If my heart is the source of my sin problem, then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. 
It's not enough to alter my behavior or to change my circumstances, which is very much what we'll often do in counseling. And this is kind of the way you kick in. Well, you avoid these op- these things that trigger your anger or you get more sleep or whatever. Not that these things are unimportant, but the point he makes here is it's not enough. It's not enough to alter my behavior or to change my circumstances. Christ transforms people by radically changing their hearts. That's the whole promise of the new covenant, the new heart I will give you. And remember, it's Christ's heart that he gives us. If the heart doesn't change, the person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of an external pressure or incentive. And you know that with your children. And the way you can get them to obey for a while, if you take them out to Carvel for ice cream, but then what happens after they get the ice cream? But when the pressure or incentive is removed, the changes will disappear. And that's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 23 and verses 25 and 26. You're familiar with all these texts. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe is, is the judgment of God. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. That, remember, comes from the heart. You blind Pharisee, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Now let me just make a note here. This isn't a trip. This is Pastor Shishko. Whenever I read language like clean the inside of the cup and the plate or circumcise the foreskin of your heart and don't be stiff-necked, I immediately ask the question, how, how can I do this? How can I change my own heart? And uh, now Tripp alludes to it here, but, but I'm going to give you a, a suggestion that I think, not that it improves on it, but will help. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay, so now here's this cute illustration. Personal ministry and fruit stapling. And here's his illustration. Think of the spring... Uh, or probably the fall, you go out, you get an apple tree. And uh, the apple tree has got a lot of rotten branches on it and a lot of rotten fruit. There may be a little bit of good fruit on some of the branches, but there's a lot of rotten fruit. And your wife says to you, honey, we've got to fix that problem. And so what you do is you go outside and you get some pictures of apples. And you, you nail those pictures of apples up on the rotten limbs. And you go and you say to your wife, see, I fixed the problem. Look at all the beautiful apples we've got on the tree. That's what Paul Tripp calls fruit stapling. My comment, don't do that. (laughs) Change that ignores the heart will seldom transform the life. Now, when you're counseling people, you are going to deal with surface things, how to avoid, how to know when your partner is ready to erupt like Mount Vesuvius and what you do to try to deal with that situation. But if you stop there, you're really not dealing with the heart of the matter. So, he says, there are three principles to guide our efforts to serve as God's instruments for change in the lives of others. One, there's an undeniable root and fruit connection between our heart and our behavior. That's Luke 6, 43-45. Two, lasting change always takes place through the pathway of the heart, Therefore, the heart is our target in personal growth and ministry. Our prayer 
is that God will work heart change in others that results in new words, new choices, and new actions. And so really biblical counseling is a lot of time before the throne of grace because we can't change hearts. Now, this gets us to a fascinating text in Ezekiel chapter 14. And years ago, one of the, one of the leaders of the so-called biblical counseling movement, Michael Bobick, who's an OPC minister, actually did his doctoral dissertation on this. Ezekiel 14 and verses 1 through 5. Linda, the coffee's excellent. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to Ezekiel and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man. Remember, Israel is being judged for its sin. They're, 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 actually, by this time, they're in Babylon, or they're going to go to Babylon. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Now, what does that mean? We'll come to that in a moment. It's like a hand that they put in front of their face, the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. In other words, they're, they're blinding themselves to this. Should I indeed, God says, let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet wanting some guidance about something. I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. This is what God says. You want guidance for your life? You want to know God's will for your life? You want to know how you can have a better life? You're asking all these Joel Osteen questions. You come to me with that, I'm going to hit you with one thing, your idols. I'm going to tell you right away, that's, that's the heart of the issue, is your idols. And then Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25, which is something of the New Testament equivalent of that. Romans 1, 21 to 25. For although they knew God, knowing God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, they became empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That, that folks, that's why Christians, we look at our culture, we say, well, this is idiocy, and it is in so many ways. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, and therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for literally it's the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now this is back to Tripp's book. Sin, he says, is fundamentally idolatrous. We do wrong things because our hearts desire something more than the Lord. And you think about it, and that's exactly the case. 
we all migrate away from worship and service of the Creator toward worship and service of the created thing. And then Tripp adds, and in the paragraph here, I just best read it, to make matters worse, this idolatry is hidden. Remember, the elders put their hands in front of their faces as a way of covering their idolatry, and and therefore it became a stumbling block. But listen to what Tripp writes about, and we would call it, cultural Christianity, okay? He says it's deceptive. Page 67 in the book. It makes matters worse that idolatry is hidden. It is deceptive. It exists underground. We can make this great exchange without forsaking our confessional theology, the catechism that we confess, or even our observance of the external duties of the faith. So, we hold on to our beliefs, we tithe, we remain faithful in church attendance, and occasionally participate in ministry activity, and yet at the level of what we are really living for, we have forsaken God for something else. This is the silent cancer that weakens the church, robs individuals of their spiritual vitality, and leads to all kinds of difficulty in relationships and situations. Then, brothers and sisters, that's cultural Christianity, where I do all the external things properly, and excuse the expression, I live as I damn well please. Uh, okay, so that's, that's the kind of thing. Okay, now, then he says it's spiritual adultery, kind of like we dealt with in the sermon today. It takes the love that belongs to God alone and gives it to someone or something else, fill in the blank. It is a life shaped by the satisfaction of cravings rather than by heartfelt commitment and faithfulness. Now, just to give you a, an illustration that sadly you run into all too painfully, a minister who will preach about holiness when he's having affairs with members of the congregation. Clearly this person is not in his heart being governed by what he's preaching. Now applying the principle, our hearts, right, Trip, are always being ruled by someone or something. Always ask, what is functionally ruling this person's heart in this situation. Uh, Comfort, peace, money, control. What is functionally ruling this person's heart in this situation? Whatever controls the heart will control a person's responses to people and situations. God changes us, not just by teaching us to do different things, but by recapturing our hearts to serve him alone. The deepest issues of our human struggle are not issues of pain and suffering, but of worship. What rules our hearts will control the way we respond to both suffering and blessing. And here is where I wish Tripp had done more, others have, But he hits the point. Remember, Jesus is out of the treasure of the heart a person speaks. 
Matthew 6 and verses 19 to 24. Now, in my opinion, this is what biblical counseling needs a lot more attention than it gets. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where the thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye, the way you look at things, is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, you're looking at the world wrongly, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve, that is worship, two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And of course, the obvious thing to think of is wealth. You cannot serve, you cannot worship God and money. And so Jesus says it is a matter of treasure. Everyone seeks some kind of treasure. Your treasure will control your heart, whether it's money or pleasure or comfort or peace or whatever it is. What controls your heart? will control your behavior. Now, at this point, I want to draw your attention to what, in my opinion, is probably the finest sermon ever done. It's not an easy sermon to read. Uh, Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish uh, pastor in, in Glasgow. It's the, it's the most profound sermon about how you grow in grace, uh, at least the most profound I've ever read. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And here's his point. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love is is a heart, right? If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And here's his point. The only way you will drive out love for the world is when you have a superior passion for God. And he is exactly right. You've got to be convinced that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all the things that they give us in redemption and glory and the life to come are treasures that are infinitely greater than anything this world offers. And if you don't get gripped with that in some way and gripped with the fact that you only have that in Christ... You're, you're never going to effectively grow in holiness. Um, again, if, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. The love of the Father, and that's God's love for us, has got to drive out the love of the world. Um, and, and so, so that's, that's the necessity of a superior passion and treasure that I mentioned here. Well, we'll let me cover the second part, and then I know you're going to have questions because uh, I do want to cover chapter 5, and then we'll do this kind of quickly. And then please talk right down to your questions, okay? Now, that brings us to understanding your heart's struggle. That's chapter 5. And here, this is an extended treatment of James 4, verses 1 through 10. And notice that James is dealing with conflict. And so Ted Tripp's subheading is looking for conflict in all the wrong places. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
You can think of this on any level. Think of it among children, think of it in your home, think of it in church life, think of it in states, think of it in nations. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, and the word is lusts, lust doesn't have to mean something evil, it's, it's a strong desire. Your passions, your lusts are at war within you. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Here we go again, to spend it on your lusts or your passions. Now that's why Ted Tripp says this is looking for conflict in all the wrong places. We don't respond, think interpersonal conflict. We don't respond to people in situations in the same way because we don't bring the same heart to them. If, if I have a neighbor that I'm called to love and that neighbor drives me nuts and I don't, and I don't, and I give, and I, I allow that to, to affect my heart, I'm going to look at my neighbor very differently than I'm going to look at my wife or Nan or anyone else. Okay? That's a profound statement. If you don't, we do not respond to people in situations in the same way because we don't bring the same heart to them. This is why any attempt to examine the causes of conflict, think of home now, must begin with, as you would guess, the heart. So verses 1 through 3, an army of desires in a world at war, as he puts it. You and I are always desiring, or even use the word lust, okay, where there's a passion for something. Desires precede determine and characterize everything we do. Desires sculpt every relationship in your life. They are the lenses, desires are the lenses through which you examine every situation. I mean, to put it bluntly, that, that's Ahasuerus. He had this desire that in a particular way was fulfilled in Esther. So that was the lens, that sexual desire, through which he examined every situation. At the foundation of all worship, whether true or false, is a heart full of desire. Now some notes here. Desire is not wrong. Our desires are an aspect of being made in the image of God. In fact, in this text, there's a desire the Spirit has for us. All right, so, so in the, even in the Old Testament, there's places where the word for desire or lust is used of God's passion for his people. So desire is not wrong. Number two, they're, they're, are, they're not necessarily evil desires. It is a, this is talking about a within-you war, as Tripp puts it, a direct attack upon God's within-you kingdom. The heart of every person is a fount of competing desires. Boy, there's one you want to ponder a lot, okay? Um, James is saying that our horizontal desires for people, possessions, recognition, control, acceptance, attention, vengeance, created things, compete with the Lord for the rule of our hearts. And again, I want you to have this handout so you can kind of fill in the blank with these things. Now he talks about dueling kingdoms and relational chaos. Who is, he says in here, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your lusts at war within you. Okay? 
dueling kingdoms and relational chaos. Writing, this is quoting Tripp. My problem is not you or the situation we're in together. My problem is that a legitimate desire has taken over my heart and is now in control. This desire has so much power that it is no longer legitimate. It has become an inordinate, sinful desire. Again, very simple illustration for a man. It's not wrong to appreciate beauty in a woman. In fact, actually, it's wrong not to appreciate beauty. But you see how quickly, how quickly that can become a lust. And you'll see how that gets worse as you go along. My problem is that a legitimate desire has taken over my heart, a desire for affection, a desire for comfort, has taken over my heart and is now in control. This desire has so much power that it is no longer legitimate. It has become an inordinate, sinful desire because it has grown to a position of authority over my own heart. You'll see in a moment that progression. This authority belongs to God alone, who sent his son to set up his kingdom there in my heart. The kingdom of God is within you. The focus of James's discussion is not evil desires, desires for the wrong things, but inordinate desires, desires that may be right in and of themselves, but must never rule my heart. It's not wrong to desire relaxation at the end of a long day. It's wrong to be ruled by relaxation in such a way that I am irritated with anyone who gets in the way. Let me give you an illustration. Folks, when I get home on Sunday afternoon, I am exhausted. You know what that's like for when you would exhort? I mean, I'm wiped out. I'm just, it's been a whole week, you're intensely thinking about things up between 5 and 5.30, getting ready for worship, and you prepared, and I usually stay up too late, and shouldn't do that, and I'm exhausted. And I come home, and I'm wiped out. I'm I'm exhausted. All I want to do is sit down outside in front of the fire pit if the weather's good and just relax. Okay, just relax. So last week I came home. Ah, finally, and I'm with Margaret. We got home at the same time, and we were in the process of changing our clothes together so we could go outside and relax. Phone rings. (laughs) And this is not one of the things that automatically goes to voicemail. It was from a very dear friend, not a Haven member, very dear friend, brother in Christ, a man who's probably one of my closest brothers in Christ. I did not want to talk to him as much as I love him. I said, oh God, please, for this whole week, all I want to do is sit outside and be quiet, see? Now, is the desire for relaxation wrong? No, there's a good reason why. I don't relax, I'm going to kill myself. It's okay, so there's a good reason. Call. This is a brother that had just found out in this economic mess that we're in, he had lost a fortune, and he was devastated. He needed someone to talk with, to listen to him, to pray with him. Now, was my attitude right when, I, when he called? No, it wasn't. Because, again, you got a legitimate demand that it became too much, too, too legitimate, too, too strong. And, and here's my point in here, okay? Um, 
we either, and, and this, this to me is always helpful when I think about desire. We either desire the wrong things, or we desire the right things too much. C.S. Lewis's prayer when he was married to Joy, his wife Joy Grisham, for a few years, he said, Lord, forgive me if I love her too much, but you know that I love her. I, I, I pray that so many times when it comes to Margaret. We can desire the right things too much, which means you make an idol out of them, and that's not a good thing. Or there's another area. We desire the best thing, the kingdom of God, too little. Now, that's not Ted Tripp, but this is Pastor Shishko. I think Ted Tripp would agree with it all. And you see, okay, wrong, we always think of, I desire something and it's wrong. I've got to mortify it. I've got to put that to death. Get that. But you realize it can be a right thing, relaxation, pleasure. Quite frankly, even reading your Bible. I, I'm at this place, I study. And I don't have a phone there, although now my watch will show me that I've got a phone call. But, and I say, Lord, I'm looking forward to in glory when I don't have any interruptions anymore. But I've got other things I've got to do. Okay, so, so we desire the right things too much. Or we desire the kingdom of God too little, all right, which is kingdom of God is its king is Christ. So ponder that one. All right, spiritual adultery and angry with people, which is what we're dealing with here, because in verse 4 he says, you adulterous people, don't you know, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is spiritual adultery. But he's, what's he talking about? Anger with people. That's the context here. If adultery is the sin of giving someone the love I promised to another, then I'm a spiritual adulterer. Whenever I give the rule of my heart to someone or something other than God, you let a creature govern your heart. If a certain set of desires rules my heart, I will not want God to be a wise, loving, sovereign father who gives me what he knows is best. Instead, I will want a divine waiter who delivers what I've set my heart on. That's Joel Osteen's theology. And the theology of all kinds of others who are tremendous at giving motivational speeches that make God out to be a cosmic waiter. All right? and, and so he pegs it here. When a certain set of desires rules our hearts, we reduce prayer to the menu of human desire. Worse, we shrink God from his position of all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful Father to a divine waiter we expect to deliver everything we ask. And Tripp uses, as an older guy, I appreciate this illustration. You go to a restaurant and you order, oh, a prime steak, 24-ounce steak, medium rare, with mushrooms, and with a baked potato loaded with butter and loaded with sour cream. Oh, and then for dessert, you have a wonderfully custom-made bread pudding loaded with butter, and that's your order. 20 minutes later, the waiter comes out with a salad. And you are angry because you didn't get your steak. 
And the waiter says, at your age, you're going to kill yourself eating all that. You need the salad. That's kind of like God with us, our Father, okay? He doesn't always give us. Remember, he says, you know, you ask, uh, but you ask that you might consume it on your lusts. And so God doesn't give us that, which is good. So it brings us to a jealous grace. And that's verse 5 that is, I'm sorry, poorly translated in the ESV. Or do you suppose it says to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. What on earth does that mean? It's the spirit of God dwells in us jealously. And, and, and that's jarring to us. How can God be jealous? Because he loves us. And that's the point. True love is always jealous. Guys, if you're not jealous of your wife and your wife finds that out, you're going to be in marriage counseling very quickly. You know, the old Louis Armstrong, I still get jealous, honey. Okay, but jealous, so he says, true love is always jealous. God, listen to this, God loves you too much to make room for other lovers. Wow! He will oppose your proud and self-absorbed living, not because he's against you, but because he loves you. God's grace forgives but it also constrains, it makes us want to follow the Lord and draws, and, and it draws, and, and oh, I don't know what wind is there, but, but also it draws us. It is jealous. It is jealous, God-focused grace fitted for the moments we are tempted to follow our own desires. And God is, don't tempt God. But you think carefully. God has his ways. When you are putting yourself into temptation, you know you should not put yourself in. And God has fascinating ways of stopping you. All right? And, and, and think about that. And don't tempt God. But that's what he... What God, God is jealous. I don't want you to go after that. Okay? Now this, the capture of the heart. John Bunyan's book, Holy War, which I think is... It's not as well written as Pilgrim's Progress, but it is equally profound. Uh, Holy War is about Mansoul, and Mansoul has been taken over by the devil, and he describes what that's like, and, and, and it's conquered by grace, and he, beautiful development. So, it's, but, but, so this is kind of a, a short version of it, the capture of the heart in relationships. James 4, 1 to... Well, actually, it's not really James 4, 1 to 10, but James 4, 1 to 5... How does that work itself out? Now, here's the progression. Desire. I want something. And that can very quickly morph into demand. I must have something. I hold my want with a tight fist. That then affects my relationship with others. You must help me get what I want. That morphs further into need. I will do this. And that's what he calls the slavery of desire. This is essential to my life. And this is what happens, especially with adultery. This is the way an adulterer or a promiscuous person will think. It is absolutely essential in the Old Testament that I have Tamar. Right? This produces expectation. You should do something. The plan for our relationship is that you meet my need. Mm -hmm. 
But this very quickly leads to, it always happens, ultimately, disappointment. You didn't do this. You didn't meet my expectations. You didn't look the way I thought you would look. You didn't act the way I thought you would act. You didn't give me what I thought you would give me. And therefore, punishment. Because you didn't do something, I will. And that person is in the active service of the creation, and the result can only be chaos and conflict in my relationship. You want the evidence of this? Just listen to, quote-unquote, the news every single day. A man doesn't want to be bothered with his son. His son has mental issues. And so the father decides he's going to hose his son down in sub-freezing weather and put him in a garage? Why? Because he wants peace. He must have peace. He will have peace. And you should be quiet so that I can have peace. And you weren't quiet. Therefore, punishment. And if you take this, all you got to do is listen to most news stories about crimes. And you're going to see something like this in one way or the other. And it's all from James. And then to wrap it all up, and I do want your, your questions and comments. The humble cleansing of the heart. James 4, verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You read that in Proverbs. The only place where there's a promise of grace when there's a certain condition. Humble is, Lord, I'm empty. I think of the Monopoly game where the guy has his pockets opened up and he's broke. He doesn't have any money. That's humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stay away externally from what will cause you to sin, and purify your hearts by coming before the Lord, asking that he cleanse them, and so on. Be Wow, what a sermon to preach on. This is user-friendly, right? Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And folks, we need more times like this. We just start writing down. Lord, I do this, I do this, I do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I give myself to this. And you put it before the Lord. Say, Lord, I need a good bath. And give it to me by, by the Holy Spirit. It's kind of this cathartic, purgative thing for the soul. Powerful passions and powerful desires. I won't read Galatians 5, 13 to 26. You can read it yourself. But it's the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit lusts against the flesh. And it's that whole text in there. Galatians 5 is about what we do next. In the face of powerful emotions and desires, what do you do? As sons and daughters of the king, will we live in self-imposed bondage to our emotions? Hello? This is our culture, folks. Self-imposed bondage to our emotions. I was listening to this ad, a podcast. I can't get over what people listen to on podcasts. Lord, do anybody listen to these things? It's a podcast about the angst of millennials. And we need to listen to their angst. One of them says, 
I'm so concerned because I spend so much money on my hair. And I know this is sinful. Lady, you idiot, don't spend so much money on your hair. The other one says, I, I dyed my whole head purple. What, what, what did you dye your head purple for? Uh, then the other one, the other one is is in there. And what, what's that last one that they there's there's three or four of them that that are in there. Oh, I I was I I was so upset. I had to wait until I was past sixteen to get my driver's license. Are you serious? This is the way our culture thinks, and we're the weird ones as Christians. Okay, so that's so the language that he uses in here is the language of self-imposed bondage to our emotions. Will we submit to the mastery of our sinful desires? Or will we grab hold of the promises of the gospel and turn in a completely different direction? I would say simply grab hold of Christ and turn in a different direction. So at the end of it, and two realities from Galatians 5. And this is, this is magnificent. It brings you to how you, what you say when you present the gospel to someone. The everyday reality of the war for the heart is the war between God's gods within you kingdom and the kingdom of creation. Put anything you want in creation, whether it be emotions or money or whatever. I must face the reality of remaining indwelling sin and my propensity to run after God replacements, like Esther did, right? The reality of my destiny as a child of God and the resources that are therefore mine in Christ are, and highlight this, one, the reality of the person and work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Our condition, writes Tripp, is so desperate that it wasn't enough for God to forgive us. He had to unzip us, get inside us, or we would not be able to do what he's called us to do. That's a vivid way of saying God changes our hearts. And number two, the reality of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ and his death and resurrection means that we do not have to obey our sinful desires any longer We can say no. That's what Paul says to Titus, say no to all ungodliness and worldly lusts and go in another direction. Then his last quote, and then please, your input. Biblical personal ministry is rooted in the story of a war and a savior king. That's the whole Bible. As we place our stories within this great story, of the compassion and love of Christ, we will understand who we are and live as we are meant to live. Wow. Ooh. Ooh. Go through two chapters. Comments, questions? I don't have Nan here with her questions. <laughs>